and welcome to episode 79 of the Reconomy Podcast, where we discuss economic issues that impact real estate, housing, and affordability. I'm Odetta Kushi, Deputy Chief Economist at First American, and in this week's episode, we once again have the whole team together to answer audience questions. We've got Mark Fleming, our Chief Economist, here with us. We've also got Xander Snyder, Senior Commercial Economist, and of course, Economist Ksenia Potapov. Happy holidays, team, and of course, happy holidays to all of our listeners. We're very grateful for you, and we wish you all the very best this holiday season. All right, well, gang's all here, and we answered a lot of questions in episode 78, but we've got plenty more left for today's episode. And just like in last week's episode, we'll take turns answering questions. So, Mark, we're going to start with you again, and the first question is very macro. Is it possible that personal savings decline and unemployment rises, which will put pressure on the economy? Is it possible in the coming year, I think, is the presumed suggestion for the time frame? I think it, so. Exactly. Yeah. Well, as we've talked about before, the personal savings rate right now is actually lower than the historic average, but that's largely because um, so much of the fiscal stimulus spending was sort of put into our proverbial piggy banks, and so we're saving less now because we have a lot of money in the piggy bank. We also all know that the U.S. economy is largely a consumption-based economy, so the consumers, more than two-thirds of the overall economic activity, and they are drawing down that savings. That's been one of the strong points in the U.S. economy over the last couple of years is the ability to sort of draw down all of that savings to continue to create consumption. There's still a fair amount of money left in that piggy bank to continue to drive consumption into next year, but in all likelihood, it will run out at some point next year. That said, it's still strong. The unemployment rate is still very low, and even if it went up by a couple of decimal points on the percentage, we're still talking about historically very, very low unemployment rates. So does it put pressure on the economy? Yes. Does it kill the economy or cause a recession? Mm, unlikely. Well, that's good. I'll take that as, as optimism for 2024. All right, moving on to another topic. Well, similar topic in, in a potential consumer headwind, and this one goes to Xander. Xander, there were a lot of questions about student loan debt repayment, auto loan delinquencies being on the rise, and higher credit card debt. Uh, all of those are potentially consumer headwinds. Do you have any data or thoughts around this? Yeah, I'll try to knock out each of those types of debt one at a time. Uh, starting with student loan repayments, the estimates really vary here. It's important to, to, to keep in mind because you can kind of select what sort of repayment plan you want. So whatever estimate exists for how much money is going to be flowing into student loan debt service is, is a big estimate. But that said, there are estimates that suggest that it'll cost about student loan debt will cost about 75 to 100 billion a year in debt service. So money that's flowing to student loan debt service. Now, one way to think about how that could impact the spending economy that we just talked about is looking at that student loan repayment relative to retail sales. So how much money in retail sales right now could potentially be redirected to student loan repayments? And that works out to about 1% of total retail sales. So not trivial, but not huge either. However, Odette, as you mentioned, there are several other elements here. So credit card debt, we're at an all-time high as far as the, the series goes. We're at almost $1.1 in credit card debt 
as of the third quarter, and delinquencies have really been on the rise. In the third quarter, credit card delinquencies stood at about 9.4%, which is almost 2% higher than a year ago. So a meaningful increase in credit card delinquencies, uh, of course, due in part to higher interest rates because people spent and now they have that debt and interest rates are higher. But can I ask, now, a, terms ask of, a quick question there? So yeah. I, I just have to interject. So credit card debt is at an all-time high, but that's mm -hmm. measured in dollars. And unfortunately, we've had a pretty significant bout of inflation over the last couple of years. So is it really fair to sort of, I guess, assert that this is a problem when in, in essence, it's not necessarily representative if we control for or inflation adjust, if you will, that dollar level? You're right. The 1.1 trillion, that is a nominal amount. It does not control for inflation. I can go back and take a look at that. I'm, it'd probably be a slightly different answer, but uh, the trend has been up over the last year in terms of credit card debt. It's gone from about uh, $770 billion, I, I think, at, at the trough over the last couple of years to $1.1 trillion now. Some of that, of course, is due to a general rise in prices across the entire economy because of inflation. Um, however, the delinquency rate yeah. is normalized across periods. Exactly. And, and that rate has gone up. So that's a more real metric we could look at. So there are some meaningful consumer headwinds going into 2024. Yeah, and just lastly on the auto delinquencies, the, the number that has been circulating is about over 6% of subprime auto loans are now, in, are now delinquent, which is also about a 30-year high. We haven't seen that number uh, that high since the early 90s. So there are you know, meaningful debt-driven consumer headwinds going into next year. All right. Well, I'm sad. Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> Count on Xander to give you the bad news. <laughs> okay, moving on to Xenia, hopefully with some better news. We're moving from the general macroeconomy to the labor market. Xenia, with boomers retiring and continuing to exit the workforce and more millennials coming in, how do you think that's going to affect the labor market and the overall economy? Again, this question doesn't have a specific time point, but let's just say next couple of years. Oh, okay. I'm prepared to give you an answer after 2040. There you go. <laughs> so, um, again, with demographics, I, I don't know if I can give a, 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 a you know, be, be the sunny silver lining to Xander's. We're <laughs> counting on you, Xenia. So <laughs> uh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so, by all accounts, um, by 2040, we are expecting more young people and also more old people, um, more people in general, actually. So by 2040, it's expected we'll have about half a million more 20 to 29 year olds and about two and a half million more 30 to 39 year olds. And that's a lot of those millennials aging into their 30s. Um, the older population that will increase faster. So we're expecting about 15 million more people over the age of 80 by 2040. Um, so on the whole, the population will get older. Um, uh, now, that probably also means um, that labor force participation, at least adjusted for demographics, will go down. Older people tend to not work, um, and so we'll see less participation in the labor force. That has a couple of implications. So one labor force is closely correlated with wage growth. Um, we've done this analysis multiple times in what we call our little new Phillips curve. Um, so you can see that whenever um, 
whenever participation increases, so does wage growth. And so if we're likely to see lower participation, we're also likely to see somewhat lower wage growth. Um, to add onto the inflation train a little bit as well, um, there are impacts of demographics on inflation. So there is um, evidence that um, population that is made up more of very young people, so children who are not in the labor force yet, and older people who are retired, um, is typically inflationary. And this trend holds consistent across multiple countries. Um, so, it, And in reverse, prime age, um, working age cohorts are disinflationary. So as the population ages, we are also likely to see some more pressure on inflation. Um, these are all very long-term trends, and so this will not happen overnight, um, but at least over the next decade or so, um, these are some of the, the factors that are likely to come into play. Sorry for more doom and gloom. <laughs> maybe, maybe the next question will be positive. Uh, yeah, I think surely. that one's for you, Odetta. The next one, right? <laughs> all righty, Odetta. So, um, do you think refinancing is past the trough point? I do have good news. I do think it is past the trough point. Is that because well, it could just go no news. lower? I mean, like you go from zero to one, that's still an improvement, right? <laughs> still an improvement, Mark, 100%. So exactly, it's it's good news and bad news. Good news in that, you know, we, we've, a lot of people refied over the pandemic, rates were sub 3%. And so the people who wanted to refi, refied. Uh, and so we're seeing, you know, in the mortgage applications data from MBA uh, that refinancing is sort of hit that trough point and it's sort of sitting there. We get some week to week variations, but really at the bottom of the hill. Now, people are still buying homes in today's higher mortgage rate environment. And those people, when rates come down and, and we hope that they do, will presumably refi. Um, there's some rule of thumb out there on when it's advisable to refi, you know, when your mortgage rates, when mortgage rates hit, what, what is it, you know? 50 basis points below uh, your, your your mortgage rate that you locked into. And so uh, I think that we will see refinancing activity increase next year if mortgage rates come down. But with that said, uh, it will pale in comparison to what we saw over the pandemic period. So higher, uh, but but still still pretty low from a historical perspective. Cautious optimism? Mm -hmm. There's Cautious. only so Cautious. <laughs> I think that's the theme yeah. of, of uh, our whole conversation today, hopefully. Okay, uh, so actually this is a good transition from what Xenia was talking about because the next question is uh, around the neutral rate. And Mark, this one is for you. What is the neutral rate? And is a higher neutral rate the new normal? And I think this question comes from the fact that there's been a lot of chatter in the news about this elusive neutral rate. So it's all yours, take it away. I don't think most people even knew what the neutral rate was prior to this inflationary cycle. And the idea that uh, economists stare at the stars, if you get my drift, because um, there are actually a number of neutral concepts in economics. The neutral rate of unemployment, which is known as U star, the uh, neutral rate of inflation, which is known as R, or neutral rate of inflation is 2%, neutral rate of interest is R star, and the reason that's important is essentially Fed monetary policy is sort of geared towards that target rate. Uh, R star is about the right level, and we'll talk Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. 
level of short-term interest, including inflation. So if you assume an inflation rate of 2%, and you assume that we s or we estimate that our star or the neutral rate of interest is another say one to one and a half, that would imply that the Fed funds rate should be about three and a half percent. The fact that the Fed funds rate is currently higher than that, a little above five, means that monetary policy is tight. That's intentional because we're trying to get rid of inflation. The good news is that means that in the long run, the Goldilocks rate should come down, which is why we believe that the Fed ultimately, once inflation is taken care of, will begin to reduce the uh, federal funds rate to get back to basically the R star rate of somewhere around three to three and a half percent. Now that said, the estimates of R star or the neutral rate vary quite widely. So we're not really sure where it is and we might get it wrong in our efforts to get just right monetary policy. That's right. And, you know, the second Just like the stars, they move. Stars, yes. they do move. That's a great point, Senya. <laughs> and the second part of that question was around, is the higher neutral rate the new normal, but higher relative to near zero? Uh, yes. <laughs> For much of the past decade prior to the pandemic, the neutral rate was estimated to be just about zero, which is why a Fed's fund rate would be equal to essentially the inflation expectation of about 2%. And what we were actually doing is having accommodative monetary policy, because remember, the Fed funds rate was even below that mark. The neutral rate has now risen in large part because of the dynamics of savings internationally and the, the supply of money relative to demand. We've got some good blog posts and some Reconomy episodes where we've talked about the neutral rate. In fact, we were talking about the neutral rate back in 2019, if I do recall. Yeah, we were cool before it before it was so cool. cool. Is, is cool it the cool? word? Staring at is the stars cool? <laughs> as economists back in 2019. Exactly. We might need to redefine cool. All right, Xander. Uh, the next question's for you. I know you've written a lot about this, and this is a question that comes up at not just at, at work events, but I would say in social events, right? Everyone's looking around and saying, we're all working from home. All of the offices are empty. There is clearly a housing shortage. I've got the answer. Why can't we just convert more offices to apartments? And I, I think you've got the answer for us. Yeah, it's easy peasy. <laughs> <laughs> the, the just do it. The really short answer is because it's hard. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, uh, a little bit of a longer answer is uh, it is it, it's costly to renovate and rehab office buildings into multifamily properties. Sometimes. The, the cost can only be slightly less than the cost to build ground up, depending on where it is. It really depends on the building. Uh, more generally, oftentimes office properties, office buildings, have a floor plate. By floor plate, I just mean design of the floor. It's very deep, so there's a lot of interior space in that office building. And typically, in apartment buildings, you don't want that much depth because you want a window, for example. And that's not just a, a desire in a lot of cases. It is a regulation so that you have an ability to escape and all that, and in the case of a fire, so on and so forth. But beyond that, uh, in an office building, you might just have one restroom per floor, and that's clearly not going to suffice in an apartment building, right? So you will need to install plumbing and plumbing is expensive cost of plumbing has gone up and it, it's it's also sometimes difficult to know exactly how much plumbing is is necessary until you do really in-depth surveys and sometimes tear the concrete out so all of that said 
there is a lot, there are a lot more office conversions going on right now than pre-pandemic. But if you look at those conversions relative to the stock of office space, it only works out to about a percent or less nationally. So there's more going on. It's not really enough to change the supply demand dynamics for office or multifamily. And it's just because it's hard to do. I imagine that given that the housing shortage is a national issue and the White House recently released a paper uh, basically saying, hey, here are all these federal programs where we already have money available for these sorts of subsidies. I imagine that next year we may begin to see more public-private partnerships because this issue is kind of creeping into the realm of, of political or social concerns related to housing shortages. So I can't imagine that happening, but that's why it's not happening more right now. All right. Well, we've all got our boilerplate answer for all the holiday cocktail parties now, right? Of why can't we just simply convert I, all of the offices to multifamily? I am wondering what kind of cocktail parties you go to where this is the kind of conversation that we have. But we've, we've talked about that before. I live in D.C., Mark. This is the exact conversation that occurs at every cocktail party. And speaking of work from home and office demand, Ksenia, the next one's for you. This, this is a tough one. What is the outlook of, of for work from home and how might it affect housing demand? Yeah, um, so we've had a couple of years of work from home now and that's been enough time to actually get some evidence. So it's not that tough to answer this question. Um, so as of mid 2023, I think uh, in a surprise to no one, um, work from home remains pretty dominant, a lot more dominant than it was pre-pandemic. So um, the, in June 2023, the share of days worked from home um, was about four times the 2019 rate, um, which is about 7%. So pre-pandemic 7%, now we're at about 28%. And that has held steady for a while. Um, of course, it depends on the industry. Um, a lot of, say, information, tech industry, business, those sorts of industries have a higher share of work from home, um, but the average is pretty high. Um, now, in terms of what's going to happen to work from home, uh, we have some indications. So there's uh, a survey by a couple of researchers that is called Survey of Working Arrangements and Attitudes, um, which indicates that employers are actually expecting to see a small increase in fully remote or hybrid jobs in the next five years. So it seems that work from home is not going anywhere. Um, it will certainly remain higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, I guess people have come to like it. I'm looking at all four of us <laughs> sitting in our homes. Well, as Xander always says, you can't uninvent Zoom. So yes, that seems that also, is true. also counterintuitive um, to much of the media coverage, which is suggesting that the um, employers are really pushing employees to come back more, not sort of an admission that maybe they'll just have to give in a little bit. Yes, it seems like there's some high profile cases that do tend to end up in the headline, but overall, work from home remains strong. Um, now on to the impact on housing. Um, so the evidence that we have so far suggests that um, higher work from home rates actually increase housing demand. Now this happens through two pathways mainly. Um, one is the increase in the size of housing demanded. So if your home serves as your home, your gym, um, your office, then you're probably going to want more home or at least more space. Um, and a recent paper by Osmek and Carlson found that remote work increases the willingness to spend on housing by between 10 and 20%. Um, and this evidence is also consistent with spending on home improvements. So, you know, if you can't move to a new home that is larger, you might just add square footage by adding an addition. Um, 
And that's that's one way. The second way is that remote work also increases the what we call the units of housing demanded by increasing household formation. So say you're living with your roommate and all of a sudden now you work from home, you might want to have an apartment of your own. So whereas before you had one apartment and one household, now you have two households. Um, and so this is why we don't really see price declines in urban centers, actually, because a lot of the the, the population loss um, that you would have expected to drive prices down in urban centers has been offset by more household formation. Um, so in terms of residential housing, the, the evidence is pretty sunny. Um, it, it seems to suggest that housing markets in city centers will remain strong um, and house prices and rents, and rents will continue to be pushed up um, by demand for more and larger housing. On the flip side, on kind of a little bit of Xander's point, um, the loss of population, especially daytime population, all these people that all of a sudden aren't commuting to offices and aren't spending on coffee and lunch in those downtown areas, that's going to have a negative impact on retail spending, on commercial real estate, especially office. Um, and it's kind of what we call the donut effect. So a lot of that spending that used to come into this urban city center in the middle of the day is going to be moving back to the suburban kind of donut around the city um, where, you know, people are now spending most of their day. So that's where they more often spend some of their retail money. Um, and as Xander mentioned, it's incredibly hard to convert um, some of those office buildings into residential buildings. So this will also impact likely tax bases in a lot of these cities. That's so interesting. Yeah, overall, good news. It is. And I think, you know, a lot of those papers sort of speak to like a long term view of, of what might occur. Of course, we know that economic uncertainty plays into household formation. And so over the near term, we may see household formation. I think we are seeing household formation slow. A lot of that is just simply in response to a lot of the uncertainty, the inflationary environment we find ourselves in. Uh, but I think the, the theory behind the paper still stands. Um, and, you know, I don't I've never subscribed to the death of the city narrative. There will always be interest in, in living in the big cities. You know, right behind the millennials are the Gen Zers. Uh, and, and I'm sure they'll behave in a similar way to millennials. But, you know, history, history in a way, well, as they say, rarely repeats, but often rhymes because it wasn't that long ago in the 70s and 80s when most large urban cities were you know, not particularly nice places to live, and they were struggling with their tax bases, and most of the people were moving out to the suburbs in the donut effect, maybe for different reasons at that point in time. But sort of we've got this rhyming effect now of sort of the, the renaissance of the urban cores that happened in the last 20 years is fading again. I That's right. There has been, I, all of us probably residential and Xander, I'm sure, and commercial saw the increase in suburban prices, both in, you know, multifamily, uh, office space, retail, as people sort of moved out to the suburbs over the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, what, yeah. One interesting point that I, I just have to point out, because it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to make a nerd comment. Uh, there, in economics, there's this concept of a substitute good, right? You can substitute one thing for another if it's sufficiently similar. And for much of history you couldn't really substitute office space with residential space and now you kind of can in part because of the remote work the rise of remote work technologies so i think while uh, this will probably rhyme there will be more people moving back into the urban cores like there was after the hollowing out in the 80s uh, you certainly didn't have zoom back then so i think there will be different dynamics in part because of that substitution that's now available to people I'm just thinking, good luck talking about substitute goods at a holiday cocktail party, Sander. <laughs> yeah, don't but take that one. Challenge accepted. But a point extremely well taken, absolutely. <laughs> 
Why are we always ending on a mention of the 80s? Uh, I'm <laughs> just so good at that. Oh, no. It's the mark effect. <laughs> you are, you are yeah. The mark effect. The donut effect on the mark effect. Okay. Yeah. I think that we've answered enough questions for today's episode. Whoa, Thank whoa, you, whoa. all of you, for. Oh, Dada, we're not going to go on to you? <laughs> oh, did I not answer my second question? Yes, there's a second question for you um, about so, what's happening with house prices and is there a geographic trend? Oh, that's well, a softball. Uh, you can answer that in no time. <laughs> so the short answer is house prices, according to our First American Data and Analytics House Price Index, have reaccelerated, and that that trend is is pretty universal. We're actually seeing it across most top CBSAs. In our latest report, there was uh, two out two exceptions. I think it was Austin uh, was one exception, and then San Antonio experienced modest declines uh, in house prices on a year-over-year basis, but generally speaking, we're seeing a reacceleration in house prices. What we did see when house prices were the softest uh, is that the West Coast, so your traditionally more expensive markets, and then markets that really overheated the most over the pandemic experienced some of the most severe uh, price slowdowns or price declines. So in the case of some of our very expensive California markets, we actually saw year-over-year price declines. Again, these are traditionally more expensive markets, so the increase in mortgage rates disproportionately impacted these markets and resulted in price declines. But we're seeing a reacceleration as demand continues to surpass supply uh, across most top markets. All right. Well, thank you all so much for answering these questions today. And thank you to the listeners for joining us on today's episode. Uh, you can check out our blog posts on all of these topics on firsthand.com slash economics. And as always, if you can't wait for the next episode, you can follow us on X, formerly Twitter. It's at Odetta Kushi for me, at M Fleming Econ for Mark, at Xander Snyder X for Xander, and at Ksenia Potipov for Ksenia. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Reconomy Podcast from First American. We're pleased to offer you even more economic content at firstam.com slash economics. This episode is copyright 2023 by First American Financial Corporation. All rights reserved.